Now please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We will be reading all of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, and uh, hopefully you please continue standing. Uh, but if you are unable, by all means, sit, but in reverence to God's word. So this is 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 1. Please give it your full attention. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words the lords of the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. <clears throat> we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 8 at the end of an era in Israel. Not only are we at the end of the Ark narrative, which stretches from 1 Samuel 4 to first, the end of 1 Samuel 7, but we find ourselves at the end of an era politically in Israel. Politically, at this time, it was the time of the judges, but it is now coming to an end. Israel was a unified confederate tribal system in the system of the judges. That is, there were 12, 12 tribes in Israel 
all operating basically as separate nations. With one man, a judge chosen by God, given to speak for God in matters of war and interstate justice and politics. It's important to point out that this system did not just come about in Israel willy-nilly. It was appointed by God. This is the system which God chose, and it made for a great amount of freedom in Israel. It was an incredibly unique system as well in the ancient world. But all that was to change in 1 Samuel 8 with the introduction of a system which all the nations around used, monarchy or kingship. Now, this change to kingship was not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, this was a change that God had prophesied long before through Jacob in Genesis 49.10. The scepter, representing kingship, shall not depart from Judah, it said there, nor the ruler's staff, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Accordingly, Moses put in place rules for Israel's future kings, and we see this in Deuteronomy 17, as we heard earlier, uh, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, of course with this caveat, whom the Lord your God will choose. So we have from God his stamp of approval upon kingship, the system of kingship in Israel. Kingship itself is not bad. On the contrary, it was part of God's plan for Israel. However, God has conditions. Six conditions, in fact, in Deuteronomy 17, as we go through this quite quickly. First, this king must be chosen of God, just as we heard. Second, he must be an Israelite. Third, he must not acquire many horses so that his heart might not be puffed up in his military might and forget God. Fourth, he must not have many wives. Fifth, he must not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And sixth, this king must write for himself, approved by the priests, a copy of the whole book of Deuteronomy to be read day and night by him to learn the fear of the Lord and his commandments. That is, this king is to be, first and foremost, a God-fearer through and through. And for what reason? We see this in Deuteronomy 17, 20. So that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And this is very helpful for us for the, this evening as we look at 1 Samuel 8. Because it tells us, not only does God have general conditions for the kings to keep them humble, but this last condition tells us why. Because God is king in Israel, and always will be king. And the earthly king that he will appoint in the future, at least in Deuteronomy 17, must accept that fact and fear God in humility. So as we return in earnest to 1 Samuel 8, what was wrong with the elders' request to Samuel for a king, as they say in verse 4? All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. First, we must realize what they are asking for. The first section is, the enormity of Israel's sin by requesting a king. 
We'll be going through verses 1 through 8 and 19 through 20, where they will answer God and his warning. To understand Israel's sin, we must first clear something up, something in the text up. We must quickly admit that Israel had one point. Samuel's sons were wicked. They did the exact opposite of what a judge should do. They, and this is verse 3, turned aside to unjust gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Sounds like our own system, unfortunately. But this is a very great sin, one worthy to bring to Israel's judge, Samuel. His silence on his sons seems to, to mean that he admits that this is the case and that they are unfit to be judges. What Samuel focuses on, however, in this is different because he actually understands that Israel's objections to Samuel and his sons are just pretexts to get what they sinfully want. Their desires were wrong, although they may have had something in the request. They ask in verse 4, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. This is, of course, a dishonor towards Samuel, the judge. It is a rejection of Samuel as their leader and an insult toward his strength. He may, in fact, be old, but youth had not been a barrier for his judging. Why would any other age for God's chosen person? And besides, Eli was never deposed and died as a judge in his old age. However, Samuel proves his worthiness as a judge immediately after this. Being old, whatever it might be, he immediately proves his worthiness. Because although he is dishonored by the people of Israel, and although he himself is upset at their request, verse 6 tells us what he did in response to this dishonor of those who are below to those who are above. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. That is quite amazing in this. I can only imagine he was very angry, but he did what was right, although greatly dishonored. He does not seek his own honor. He immediately prays to the Lord for guidance in these things. This is a good judge, one that they ought to keep. God answers this in verse 7. Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God understands Israel's request in its real meaning. It's not the cry of a mismanaged people, weary of bad leaders. It was the cry of Israel's idolatrous heart. who do not want God to be their king anymore. See, the nation's kings were the exact opposite of Deuteronomy 17, the king of God's selection. Kings were not simply political entities at this time. They put themselves in every place. They were the supreme judge of the land. They were the supreme priest of the land. And they were simply supreme in every manner of power, even being worshipped as gods by many, if not most, countries of this era. When Israel asks for a king like all the nations, this is the king for which they ask, a king which has supreme and centralized human power, a king which is able to follow his own heart, a caricature of God himself. They desired to wrest control away from God in the civil realm and rule themselves. They thought humans could do better than God. 
We see this and much more in Israel's blasphemous response to God's revelation of the consequences of their choice for a king after their own heart. This is verses 19 through 20. They answer God, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Here the reason Israel brings, which just makes their request all that much worse. First, they felt that they weren't relevant on a world political scene. In their pride, they wanted to be important to other humans. Although they were, wonder of wonders, the chosen of the immortal, exalted God of the universe, their king. As if they weren't important already, but they wanted to be important to humans. Second, they felt that God's judge did not have enough power or judge well. Again, a desire to wrest control from God's greater control. And third, they felt that God's protection of Israel was not up to snuff. The king will go out before us and he'll fight our battles. The Philistines were truly threatening at Israel's doorstep at this time, as is the case throughout all of 1 Samuel And they simply did not trust God's love or protection of Israel. They wanted a human king because a human king would fight their battles better than God would, apparently. At base, God calls all of this what it is in verse 8, idolatry. He says, This is according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. God is saying Israel is trying to replace God and plant in his place a human idol. Israel is saying to God, in effect, we have our own methods, God, of getting things done. We don't need you. We have our own methods that work, and they get us comfort. They get us control and relevance. You don't want us to do them because you want to keep us down. We know better now, God. Look at what the nations are saying. Can they all be wrong? Are we any different than Israel today, brothers and sisters? The church pines to conform itself to the world and be relevant to other men. It is not content to simply let God be our king and we be his kingdom. The church at large pines for some other political king to set upon the throne Nor is the church content to let the Lord be true, though everyone be a liar. We must always sinfully bow to the spirit of the age in some way. We say today, like Israel of old, no. We know better now, God. Changing our gender will make us happy. Watching pornography will make me happy. Lying to my family will make our family more secure and comfortable. Just this little dishonor of your name, O Lord, will make our family so much more financially secure. The best evidence tells us that we are right, God, so don't tell us that we're wrong. When you're behind the times, God says, idolatrous hearts and idolatrous Israel here. We so easily follow Israel and reason ourselves out of God's kingship. Run from this, brothers and sisters. God does not leave sin unpunished. So we turn to God's warning in verses 9 through 18, of his punishment if Israel were indeed to take this king. The consequences with the way of kings is not new, in fact. 
He will force your children into slavery, says God. He will force your daughters to attend to him in any way he likes. He will make a standing army for your children to die for his glory. He will make you plow his ground and reap his harvest. He will take everything good from you and give you nothing back. He will take the best from you and give only his worst back, thinking only of himself. Truly the way of kings has not changed even unto this day. The amazing thing from this section, the prominent thing is his. At base, God is warning them of this. You will work for him. He will not work for you. You will be slaves to him. He will slave away at nothing but himself. God says in summary in verse 17 to Israel, the sons of slaves to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, I might remind you, he says these words, you shall be slaves. Israel's choice will have dire and lasting consequences. And God says, if they choose wrongly, then God will not rescue them. Verse 18, and in the day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Notice how much, much emphasis is placed upon Israel's responsibility. Your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. This is a turning point for Israel for the next several decades. They have a choice. Like some of our sinful choices, there will simply be no turning back from the consequences if we sin. Beware of your sin, brothers and sisters. God may give you up to it, even as he warns you, especially after his warnings, and not answer our cries because he is giving us what we so desperately wanted and teaching us the meaning of his fatherly kingship. Yet God... For all the blasphemy of Israel, its foolishness, is shown to be gracious in this choice. We know the rest of the story of Israel in First and Second Samuel. And God does not abandon his people to their sin as much as they so deserve it. As you go to the third section, God's gracious response to Israel's sin. This is verses 21 through 22. We know the rest of the story. The king whom Israel lusted over who would solve all their problems, especially against the Philistines, is a failure. He makes Israel more unstable. He seems to go clinically insane during his reign, is oppressed by harmful spirits, and tries to kill his subordinates regularly. He is so foolish that he almost kills his own son, and he visits a witch instead of praying to God. This king, Saul, accomplishes some things, but when he disobeys God... And this is in 1 Samuel 15. He is rejected by God as king. The Israelite experiment of a king of their own choosing, like the nations, is a failure. Everything that God said would come about came true and would come true in the centuries continuing with every king, not after God's own heart, but made like the kings of the nations. And so we see God's will fulfilled in our own lives in a similar manner. Hebrews 13.4, God will judge the sexually immoral and the idolatrous. He says this as a warning. Does our heart say no to God and his warnings and long to have control 
happiness and relevance through our sin. The foolishness is obvious in our story, but we are in this story just as much, Jesus says to us, you know the commandments. And God is so loving and gracious with us, though, that he even uses our sin to save and perfect his elect. God changed the disaster of Israel's choice of a a king to good, this evil thing to good, by anointing David, the king after God's own heart, to rule after them after Saul's rejection from God. Even when God warned Israel in verse 18 that if they cried out to him that he would not answer them, he gave them what they needed, not because they cried out, but because he loves Israel, his son. He gave Israel not what they desired, not what they yearned for, but what they needed and ought to have asked. A king after God's own heart in David. David was not after his own glory. His heart was not lifted above his fellows. Quite the contrary, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he, the man after God's own heart, he finally destroyed the Philistines. David certainly fought for Israel, but not in his own strength. God made this clear with the young David's victory over Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, says David, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David obviously knew that he was an instrument in God's hand, and he knew his place. If he were to triumph, it would be the Lord's doing. And he proclaimed as much to Israel and even to the Philistines on the place of battle. However, As great a king as David was, not only did he gravely sin with Bathsheba and murdered her godly husband, Uriah the Hittite, but he also did not destroy Israel's greatest enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This king, David, was not equipped to be victorious over death and sin. Yet far, far beyond this story in Israelite history, there was a king who would be sinned against, just as God is sinned against blasphemously here in 1 Samuel 8, and he would use that sin for the good of the blasphemer. The Lord used the sin of Israel later in its history for good, even the sin of Israel again rejecting God as their king, as they yelled, we have no king but Caesar to Pilate, and as they grumbled when the king of the Jews was placed above Jesus' cross as he died, The Lord used this evil idolatry, this blasphemy, the greatest evil that could ever be conceived of, and responded with grace. He not only said, forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do, but came in power as king over them. The man, not only after God's own heart, but who was God himself. Jesus is the good shepherd for the sheep who lays down his life for the sheep. He has no hired hand, no king like the nations after the nation's heart, who, when he sees a wolf, runs because he cares nothing for the sheep. No, Jesus is the good shepherd, the good king. He came that sinners might have life and have it abundantly, even at the expense of their own, his own life. Christ has given us security beyond what an earthly mortal king could ever provide. He conquered sin, death, and hell. So great is this king that he was not used by sin. He used sin 
even the blasphemer's sin, by taking their sin upon his back and using their sin of murdering him, that he would save the world from unbelief. Little children, God writes to you in 1 Samuel 8 that you may not sin. Do not use God's turning of your sin to good, to say sinning is good in any way. God has written 1 Samuel 8 to tell us that our sins have dire and lasting consequences. And sometimes one sin will be so decisive for our lives that God will leave you to the consequences of your choice. For Samuel 8 is not to tell us to sin. God writes to you in 1 Samuel 8 that you may not sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and he will not let anything, least of all our sins, get in the way of his love and salvation for us. This has been the way of his dealing with us, even in 1 Samuel 8 with Israel. And as he did not give up on Israel in 1 Samuel 8, nor Israel who crucified the Lord of glory, he has not given up on us, even if we continue to sin. Beware the consequences, but be aware of God's love, which is more powerful than your sin. No matter who you are, if you repent and believe in Christ, sin is no obstacle to God. It never has been, it never will be anymore because of Christ. Sin is no obstacle to God. God's love to overcome our sin is exemplified here in 1 Samuel 8 in God's gracious response to Israel's monumental idolatry. But God's love for wretched sinners is proven and accomplished in God's gracious response to Israel's monumental idolatry. At the cross, we all like sheep have gone astray to the king of our own choosing, but God will not let our sin, the sin of his elect, bar him from blessing his elect and even use our sin to save us. So great his power. He will soon come to reign as king and every knee will bow and all confess Jesus is Lord and he will use everything in all creation to get us there. Praise God, our King, who so loves us and makes us not slaves that we might only do things for his own good, but even for our own good. He works for our good, brothers and sisters, and he works for our salvation with all things in creation. Let us praise him and go to him in prayer. We thank you, Lord, that we serve you, and you have even served us. What a wondrous thing to speak of, Lord, that you, a great king, the shepherd of the sheep, have laid down your life for us. Lord, you are indeed the good shepherd, the good king, and we pray, Lord, that we might not lust after what purports to be king's or purports to be kingly, but has nothing within it but our own desires and will bring us even to greater ruin. Keep us, Lord, from these sins. Make us to choose what is right. And Lord, we pray that even in the consequences of our sin, 
that you would turn our sin to good. For Lord, we continue to sin. And we ask for forgiveness of these things that we might not continue in our sin. But when we do, we ask, Lord, that you would be merciful to us and use our sin to draw us back to yourself. So great your power, O Lord, that you can even do this. We pray that you would. We ask all these things, O Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.